Let's read our passage for the sermon. All right, let me read it to you. You can find it uh, printed in the the, uh, the handouts, and also I believe it's uh, it's page. This is God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Oh Lord, we thank you and we praise your name and we ask that you would bless this uh, this time, as we consider your word and the uh, the truths and the realities in it, may the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. For we know that they are good for us uh, when they are. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. A few years back, Woody Allen uh, made a movie called Midnight in Paris. And he explored uh, some of the trappings or the, the, the dangers, the fallacies of nostalgia. The basic plot of the movie was that uh, uh, a person is transported back in time, roughly a generation before, the time that the person idolizes, idealizes, and, and finds as they go back at that time had troubles of its own. It goes back even a couple of generations at parts and exploring this idea that if we could only get back to the way that we had been, everything would be fine. And sometimes people do this with the church. If only we could get back to the, the, the early church, the Acts 2 church, and everything would be perfect. Can we go back to the Bible and just find the model for that perfect church that existed in that time. But the reality, of course, is that the perfect church never existed. The perfect church is only promised in our salvation that is completed in the resurrection. When we looked at Philippians chapter 3 at the beginning of the year, you remember Paul had set his heart so much on the hope of the resurrection and looking to that time to be the fulfillment of all of his desires and hopes and, and dreams. See, there's a real danger in finding our hopes and dreams in recovering something that was lost, unless we take it all the way back 
to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. The hope that we hold out is something that we can't find even in the examples of the New Testament. The letters that Paul writes to these fledgling churches in various cities contain all kinds of problems that existed in the cultures. Whether it was false teachers and false beliefs, especially this notion that uh, circumcision was still required in order for salvation. And Paul explains, no, that's a work of the flesh. It's a work of human hands, and it is inferior. It is grossly inferior to the work that Christ has done with godly hands, with spiritual hands, in order to rescue the fleshly out of their trouble. Now, that doesn't mean that when we're resurrected, we leave the body behind and the flesh is all evil. What it means is that God himself, with a spiritual power, had to redeem and reconcile the flesh that had fallen into sin to himself. This is an important point to talk about another time, but it's, it's a remnant of Plato in the escaping the body of uh, being some type of spirituality that's not in Scripture. Paul's hope was on the resurrection looking forward, not looking back. I press on to win the prize, Paul says. Galatia had the problem of... <clears throat> the circumcision, as did many other churches. Philippians probably had it to some degree. Other churches were wrestling with uh, sexual immorality, especially the church in Corinth, and to some degree in Rome. The need for a, a sexual morality that is apart from just what we desire. Woody Allen is famous for saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. But the problem is that what the heart wants oftentimes is not healthy for the human being. This is a place where our, our, the Word of God presses into this cultural moment, especially saying there's a warning. Just because you want something, particularly in terms of a sexual desire, does not mean that it is good for you. Nor does it mean that salvation cannot be received by you. You see, that's an error that the church has gone down in times past in communicating to many people that if you struggle with certain sexual desires or you have certain sexual desires that you are not welcome in the church. And I'm not just talking about homosexual desires. I'm talking about all kinds of sexual sins that, uh, that many people struggle with that people have said, no, you have no business being in the church. We want to be free from you. But the problem, the problem with that and every other form of nostalgia is that while some things might have appeared to be good on the surface, when you look deeper, particularly at the hearts, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of pride and arrogance. There's all kinds of hypocrisy. Or you look back on the 50s and 60s and say, if only we could get back to that time when the family was leave it to beaver. And you say that to anyone in the African-American community and they'll remind you that that was an awful time, especially living in the South, but in any part of America. 
Because the hearts, even the hearts of those in the churches, were not addressing the true issues, the true issues of the heart and the heart's desires. See, Woody Allen is right about the heart wants what the heart wants, but God says into that and into our lives, you need to reshape what the heart wants. You need to have Jesus come into your heart and rearrange all of its desires. I'll tell you, one of the most dangerous places the church has been in years past is trying to address sin by doing away with certain behaviors and stopping certain behaviors and not replacing the heart's desires for those certain things with something that is better and is good. You see, counseling that tries to simply not do certain things will always fail. It will always fail because it doesn't set the human heart on something better. Now, the church in Philippi, I wonder where I'm going with this and what it has to do with the passage. The church in Philippi was actually one of the healthiest churches we read about in the New Testament. And so the nostalgia kind of applies a little bit to Philippi. Yeah, there were two women who were arguing, Yodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, but that doesn't seem to really be the heart of the letter, the reason for the letter. The letter is praising this church, Paul, the apostle who is in prison, for professing the gospel of Jesus Christ, commends the Philippian church because they are the ones who have partnered with him most in giving him financial resources to help him in his ministry and even in his time in imprisonment, in loving him and praying for him and united, uniting their hearts with him. They've, they've expressed their concern for him and love for him, which as a pastor is so powerful when people express that to you. I can tell you for a fact, and I know uh, that from many pastors. And yet there is an issue there is an issue in Philippi, or not, in, not necessarily in Philippi, there is an issue in this letter of Philippians that does seem to drive Paul's teaching. And what is Paul's teaching? You're, many of you are familiar with, if you ever read the book or even memorized any scripture, you've probably read some of the, Rejoice, Paul says. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, later in chapter 4, he says, I've learned the secret, the secret of being content in any and every situation, to, both in want and in plenty. Joy and peace are at the heart of Paul's letter. He's writing to this church to commend to them and to instruct them on how to find joy and peace. And I know that so many of us are longing to find joy and peace, whether we're in the church, believers, followers of Christ, or outside of the church, still, after years, the book, I just saw it on the list, the top 10 nonfiction, uh, the book, uh, oh, I just drew a blank on the, the, the title, uh, The Happiness Project, that's what it is, The Happiness Project has remained in the top 10 list of best-selling books for years, representing our desire to find contentment, peace and joy in life. Of course, happiness is different from joy and peace. Joy and peace are abiding. They endure, whereas happiness tends to 
match our experience in life. And Paul, Paul is a preacher, a missionary, a pastor who has found joy and peace while he is sitting in prison. And it seems to just be oozing out of every pore of his body. And we look sometimes at places like China where there are famous pastors now imprisoned and who express this and we wonder what would it take to have that. I wonder what would it take to have that kind of joy sitting in a prison cell, imprisoned for my faith. And Paul sets the stage for finding joy and peace in this life looking for the salvation that is to come, wrestling with the question, is it better for me to live or die? Because if I die, I know I'll be with Christ, but I know it's better to live because I can continue to do what he's called me to do. And the setting for finding this joy and peace for him and even metaphorically and even maybe really for some of us is this prison. Imprisonment for our faith. Now, you've noticed I, I didn't say a prison cell because one thing that's been helpful even in recent uh, archaeological discoveries and textual discoveries is that it used to be that the thought was that this was um, the, 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 the place where he was being held in prison was some type of palace. It says imperial guard in my translation in, in verse 13, imperial guard. And it's a correction on previous translations where it said the imperial palace. And some people said, well, it must have been in Caesar's palace because he refers, you know, to, uh, to, to household of Caesar at the end of the letter sending greetings. And maybe that's the case. It very well, maybe. Some people said, well, there was also a, 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 a royal palace in Caesarea. In, uh, in Israel, if you go there today, you can even visit the ruins of this palace and, and there's, there are plaques about this be, possibly being the place where Paul was imprisoned. But the, the more recent um, archaeological discoveries and what this word means that, that, the, the, that's translated sometimes palace or imperial guard is that it was a, 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 a special unit of soldiers that served Caesar and whose job it was in part to watch the, the imperial prisoners. They were the best prison guards around. Not just prison guards, the soldiers who were elite. And Paul had a group of these soldiers keeping watch on him. It's possible, even likely, that this actually was outside of the city of Rome in some type of encampment where these uh, these soldiers tended to, uh, to, to, to operate and keep a prison, and so it wasn't even a building at all. But it was this elite group of soldiers who were watching Paul, and among them, the gospel had spread. Now, isn't it interesting? With that all set... Isn't it interesting that where Paul takes this path toward peace and joy from his place in prison is through Jesus Christ's example of humility. 
of humility and how he laid down his, his attributes, or at least the exercise of his attributes. He set them aside so he could come and rescue us. And in a very subtle and humble way, Paul is demonstrating that humility for us in this place, in this passage, and setting the context. See, what was happening, he wasn't just in prison in Rome because the Jews were accusing him of things or because the Romans thought he was an insurrectionist. Paul was probably still in prison in part because other preachers were jealous of his work and were happy that he had been thrown in prison so that their work could succeed more. And you say, well, these were false teachers. Surely they were teaching wrong doctrine. But Paul wouldn't have commended their preaching if they were preaching false doctrine. He said, what, it doesn't matter what their motive is. As long as Christ is being proclaimed, I rejoice. And so these were true teachers. They were t- preaching the true gospel. And yet they were part of keeping Paul in prison because they were envious and jealous. Because of their own selfish ambition. Can you imagine the type of maturity of faith it would take to honestly, now most of us know the right thing to say, but to honestly say, I rejoice because people are hearing the gospel through the work of these these men that are keeping me in prison. See the path? To joy and peace. The path to joy and peace involves not only suffering, but a radical humility that is impossible for humans to have unless the maker of heaven and earth has assured you not only of a hope in heaven, but his, etern- his, his constant, continual presence and provision for you in everything in this life. Now, two points to make out of this passage. The passage really breaks down into two paragraphs. They're broken down in two paragraphs, 12 to 14, and then 15 to 18. First one is this way. What through the lens of human eyes looks like defeat. Through the lens of spiritual eyes is rightly seen as victory. And second, this the victory of the gospel means more to Paul, far more to Paul than anything else in this life. Now, a quick note on that. That doesn't mean that we withdraw from life. Paul's relationship with those Philippian believers shows a deep connectional friendship, a meaningful sharing of life. This is not the type of spirituality that is so heavenly minded, it is of no earthly good. Paul enters into the reality of life. Let's look at these two points and what they mean for us 
as Christians. First, what through the lens of human eyes looks like defeat. Paul's in prison, facing potential death. Through the lens of spiritual eyes, it's rightly seen as victory. Now, how does Paul claim victory through this? It's not just that he's being strengthened by being in prison. Whatever makes, doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I'm going to endure the suffering. No, he looks at this and he sees what, this, what, what Satan has intended for evil, what these other people have intended for evil. In language like Joseph, the patriarch, Joseph, the son of Jacob, put in prison what his brothers intended for evil, God has used for good. And that good is that it has really, in tangible ways, in real ways, served to advance the gospel, that is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and his salvation, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for Christ. And then second, that not only has it had the benefit of these guards, these elite guards hearing about Christ, but it has also had the benefit of other believers who may have been timid in their faith, afraid, afraid of what professing their faith might have meant. Verse 14, they've become confident in the Lord by Paul's imprisonment. They are bold to speak the word without fear. Now, when difficulties come our way, as I'm going to ask the two tough questions, you need to hear them. When difficulties come our way, are we resentful to God and do we clam up? We say, why have you done this to me, God? Second, how bold are we to speak the word of truth to those around us? It's a dangerous time to speak that word. Our jobs oftentimes may be on the line if we overstep certain bounds. And wisdom is to be applied. We've looked at the book of Proverbs and understanding this is not a simple, I just need to be obnoxious about my faith so that many will hear and what, comes, what may come will come. Wisdom is important. Understanding that our relationship with people and the true compassion and concern we show for people through tangible deeds and actions speaks oftentimes far more to a person, especially before we've communicated any of the reason for the hope that we have, the reason that we would be generous with our lives and with our time. And so don't go off and say, Mike told me to go and be obnoxious with the word of faith. You see, Paul has spent time with these prison guards. They have seen that he is not just looking for any opportunity to escape or to make their life miserable. He has shown them love and grace and compassion. They see a life that is transformed by a hope that transcends his present experiences. I find it kind of interesting, it's a bit of an aside, some of the most profound 
conversion stories in the Bible are of Roman centurions. You remember that? Jesus teaching, uh, teaching in the Gospel of Matthew and and the centurion comes to him and, and he explains, you know, I follow and, and, uh, and you know, I have many that, 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 that report to me, but I also am one who is under, under command and Jesus commends him for his faith. So I've never seen any faith like that. This is amazing faith for he knows that he's one under authority. And when Jesus is dying on the cross and he cries out his last breath, one of the soldiers who had heard the whole thing and all of Jesus wrestling with the reality of his death and even the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, truly, this was the Son of God. Other jailers are converted. They, when Paul is, the, the, the earthquake strikes and Paul could have left the jail and yet he stays so that they are not killed and they see his faith and they believe. I just find this fascinating that these people who are physically strong, who are uh, paid well, who have a position of respect and authority in the community are the ones who can most readily see who Jesus really is and believe some of the time. They are open to the gospel. Now, this is just to encourage you that some of the time the people who you think may be most opposed to the gospel or feel no need for it are not, are, are actually the ones that, that, that God has prepared to hear the gospel. And we get caught up in some of our fears and anxieties and assumptions to the point where we don't share the gospel actively with those other people. There's reason. And as we continue to go through Philippians and look more at this future hope that we have and how it impacts our present hope and our experience and our life and our priorities, the ability to live into this life. Even next week, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at um, the, the, Paul's wrestling with the question, you know, is it better for me to live or to, to die? And he says, no, it's better for me to live in this life because God has put me here for this purpose, for the advance of the gospel and for, to be in relationship with these people, soldiers and people in Philippi and all these other things in a life-changing power that he experienced that helped him to reset all of his priorities and experiences. A second, a second paragraph here. is that this victory of the gospel means more to Paul than anything else in life. And this, this is a fascinating section because he's wrestling with these other pastors who are motivated by envy and jealousy, something that I know nothing of as a pastor. I have never been envious or jealous of another pastor in my life. I'll keep saying it until somebody laughs because you know that it is not true. And I can tell you firsthand that pastoral work is so fraught with the dangers of comparing yourself to the fruit of other people and finding your value in the, the numbers and experiences in the podcast listeners in the, the, the Gospel Coalition articles and all these other things that are empty and meaningless. And they are a 
danger of life itself for a pastor. Just last week, we were at the Presbytery meeting. I mentioned last week, it was last Saturday, all-day meeting. And I was asked to give the homily to open the meeting. And I looked, I used this passage to encourage this fellow group of pastors to not let their hearts be motivated by envy, jealousy, selfish ambition. For it's a dangerous and deadly course. Paul says, look, I rejoice that the gospel is going out and many people are hearing. But he doesn't say this here, but he implicitly says it throughout the rest of the book. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not commending these pastors because because these pastors are in a dangerous and deadly position themselves. And in fact, the rest of the letter is warning the Philippians not to follow the example of these other pastors and teachers because of how deadly and treacherous this road is. You see, it's not just pastors and church leaders who are tempted to be envious and jealous of a life of faith of other believers. Almost, no, every one of us is tempted every day to look at our life and measure our faithfulness, our belief, our our good works, our whatever it is, against the person sitting to our left and the person sitting to our right. Every one of us tries to find comfort in saying, at least I'm not that guy. Screwtape Letters opens with this very thought. Remember the C.S. Lewis Screwtape Letters? If you haven't read it, I highly commend it. It was instrumental in my conversion and my understanding of, of faith. But it opens with a, uh, the, the, the plot is a demon mentor and mentee are, are dialoguing through letters uh, because the, the mentee is following a sign to one particular man. And this one particular man early in the book becomes a Christian. And one of the earliest, uh, earliest pieces of advice that the, the older demon gives, the whole thing is, of course, fictional, but the older demon gives to the, 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 the novice is to have this man sit in the church and turn his head side to side so he can look, about, look at this person and say, I, I know what this person does and the hypocrisy of them sitting here. And I know what this person is what their life looks like. And, and when we compare ourselves in the Christian life to the sanctification and the good works of others, we cause such a condition in our heart to form that it's impossible for us to see our own sin. Either that or we become completely overwhelmed by our sin. Maybe you're sitting there and looking at everybody else and thinking, they've all got it together and I don't. Believe me, they don't all have it together. Or we're saying to everybody else, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have any of their problems. I'm doing pretty well. And this seed 
This seed of envy and jealousy plants itself inside our heart and causes a heart disease and illness that grows from the inside. The illustration I gave to, uh, to, to, to the pastors this, this past Sunday is, is one of uh, a friend of mine is a radiation oncologist and um, he makes these, these, these tiny seeds that are implanted inside a tumor, inside some part of cancer. And that radiation targets the cancer and, and, and kills it from the inside out. So there's not general radiation killing a bunch of other things and, and attacking the cancer. And jealousy and envy are like a harmful seed going after healthy tissue, the healthy tissue of the heart. You can imagine if you put even one of these seeds that's intended to kill this bad thing into the, your own heart, it would kill you very quickly. And as we, as we get into this letter to the church in Philippi, and, and Paul is setting us to look at the, the, the central characteristic of Christ's humility, we need to have our hearts convicted of and, and reminded of the enemy of that humility. The thing that will block our humility is, is the very thing that characterized these pastors with false motives, and that is their envy. Not just their envy. They're not just jealous. Their rivalry. They're measuring their success against other people. Their rivalry and their selfish ambition. Now here are three Three deadly motivations that are at the heart of our Western civilization today. Everything that we learn in school and in life is telling us, let these things drive you to work harder. And every one of us can identify with at least one of these as a primary motivator in our life. But hear, hear me say this very clearly. If you just hear me say, get rid of these things without replacing them with something positive, without replacing them with some other motivation, you will never defeat those things. More than that, you will, you will be hindered in your work for the gospel. When you're just trying to put to death your sin and not fixing your eyes on Christ and who he is and the beauty of him, you might have some moderate success in putting your sins to death. Usually it'll be some type of ebb and flow and it'll feel more defeatist as you go along. But you will never experience the joy and the fellowship and the peace that Paul is holding out for you that comes from Christ. That you can experience sitting in a jail cell, possibly facing execution, but even if he doesn't face execution, a life that is filled with suffering, you can experience a peace and joy that transcends that. You can come to your anxieties and say, by prayer and petition, I know that God hears my prayers and knows my needs. And I know that I have a Savior in Jesus Christ who has not just declared that I'm forgiven, but come and entered into this suffering, died a death 
was imprisoned for something that he was not guilty of. He has experienced our suffering so that we might be even more assured that he is with us, that he knows us, that he has power over those things, and the power is in the resurrection, defeat of death itself. That's a good place for us to break, continue it next week. Let's pray. Jesus, we we thank you that you have put in our hearts not a seed that kills them, but a seed that kills the cancerous desires in them. We, we put to death these wrong motives in our hearts and minds, replacing them with a a seed and a desire and a heart that is filled with love and affection for you and for one another. Father, may we not just look at Paul and say, man, that's amazing, I could never do that. To see in Paul a human being who was saved by your grace, equipped for the thing you had called him to. And may we see an example of how to trust fully in your gospel. For it is the good news for sinners. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not to heal the well, but for the sick. Amen.